Things kind of clear out a little bit when that happens. <clears throat> well, good morning. It's uh, great to be together with you. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, open your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 30. Psalm 30, and I would remind you, for uh, the kids, um, kind of you three age and younger, that uh, there is a blast zone uh, note sheet available for you, and if you will fill out the center fold portion there, then uh, there's a place for you that you can draw if that's your bent. Uh, there are questions to answer and whatnot, and if you will come over here after the service, uh, I believe uh, Brianna is going to come up and uh, collect those from you and do a small quiz to make sure that you got everything right. Um, and uh, and then if if that's the case, if if you filled that out uh, following along in the sermon, etc., then uh, she's got a, a gift for you. So uh, sorry, that's closed to adults. I know it's tempting because I don't give you know treats for paying attention to my sermons normally, but Brianna does. So we are in Psalm 30, and uh, let me read that for us this morning. A Psalm of David. A song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountains stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let's pray. Father, we join together this morning and come before you in this way, recognizing our need for you. Recognizing that we need to hear from your word. We need to be taught of your spirit this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to uh, quiet our minds, to focus on what uh, your word has for us this morning. That we would be able to uh, learn of you and then go and apply that in our lives. Help us to make sense out of our lives in light of your word, not the other way around. So, Father, we ask that you would bless this time. We, we need you, and we wait for you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I have been uh, working through the Psalms, obviously, the last uh, month or two, and it's been an exciting time for me to be able to uh, spend more time in the Psalms. I don't know. Uh, it seems like people kind of, some gravitate to the Psalms and some less so, uh, but the Psalms are fascinating for a lot of reasons, one of which is that the psalmist will often come to a situation that may be very difficult or hard to understand or or he may be down or he may be just be uh, full of praise, but he, he comes to that topic and in working through it, we are instructed how to look to the Lord, how to trust in Him. We're, uh, we, we learn by reading the Psalms how it is that the reality of who God is and the fact that we as Christians know Him helps us to understand, helps us to make sense of the world we live in, the difficulties we face, the pain and the loss that we suffer, and all of those things. And, and so uh, the Psalms will, um, will instruct us, will disciple us in how to do that. And so I encourage you, uh, even as we, this, this will be the last uh, psalm, at least in this, uh, in this period of time, that we go through together. But in your own Bible reading, turn to the psalms. And don't just whip through them. You know, you can, some psalms you can read in 30 seconds, you know, and others take a little bit more time. But, but for each psalm, pause and think. Pause and, and, and allow the psalmist to describe to you, to explain to you this process that, that he goes through again and again and, uh, and be instructed in that because there's a lesson for us in how to be encouraged um, by our relationship with God, how to understand and know him and live in light of those facts. And so uh, I encourage you in reading the Psalms. And indeed, our Psalm today does uh, the same thing. We have here this Psalm of David and he it's broken up into two main pieces. First, he talks about his lessons learned, so he kind of gives us the summary, or he gives us his what he has gleaned from this situation in the beginning of the psalm. And then later on, he moves into working through a little bit more of the details about how that process happened, how he learned those lessons that he gleaned. And, and uh, so normally we might expect it to be the other way, but this one, he starts with uh, the, his gleanings. He starts with his lessons learned. And I want to note, first of all, just in the first three verses, he starts with a very great confidence. He says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from shale. You have restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. So you can see he's reflecting on some situation. He's reflecting on the Lord's salvation, deliverance in some uh, capacity, in some situation. He's been rescued. He's cried out to the Lord, and the Lord has drawn him up. And I love that that imagery. These first three verses here kind of uh, paint a picture of, of uh, the, the psalmist going down, farther down, like towards Sheol, like towards the pit, towards death. And the Lord drawing him up like drawing water out of a well. That's the imagery here. And that's the salvation that uh, the Lord provides for David. And so he's, he's reflecting on this time and he's looking back and he's praising God for this uh, deliverance that God has given him. For the fact that he has drawn him up like water from a well. He has drawn the, the uh, psalmist out of some, some sticky situation. Some, some terrible uh, awful plight that he found himself in. 
He's got personal history with the Lord. He can reflect on the fact that God has redeemed him. Not just in some mysterious cosmic sense or, or something like that. He can reflect in his life and say, I remember that time. You remember that time? I remember that time. And the Lord delivered me. He drew me up. It was, it was a, an awful situation. And again, in Psalms, it's hard to nail down what the situation was. We don't read the chapter before and say, oh, that's the situation he's going through. It's not really the way that works. So we kind of we have to reflect a little bit on what he means. But it was bad. Maybe, maybe you've felt like that. Maybe you felt like him, that, that you were, uh, felt like your soul had been abandoned to Sheol, the place of the dead. That life is over, or it may as well be over. Maybe physical death you've faced. Maybe loss. Maybe uh, something else that's been bad enough that it may as well be death. And that's how the psalmist felt. And while he was going that direction, while he felt like he was falling off of that cliff, the Lord drew him up. The Lord drew him up like water from a well. And so, one of the things I love about reading the Psalms is that it's, they're written from personal experience. It's not somebody philosophizing about how things ought to be or about what could be the case. He's reflecting on his own situation. And that's helpful for us because the psalmist has been through things that many of us have not been through. We've not been through the exact same things. And, uh, and we're going to talk in a minute about what I think is possibly behind this psalm. But, but David is saying, it was bad. And I trusted the Lord because he is trustworthy. And he saw me through it. It's a little bit like you know, approaching a bridge, like if you're out walking in the mountains and you've got to go across a chasm, you've got to go uh, across the water or something like that, and there's this bridge, and you look at it and you're thinking, I don't know, you know, who designed this thing and how long has it been there and is it going to hold me up, right? Well, then comes, a, you know, someone who hikes that trail every week. They come right by and they plow through the bridge and they keep on going because they, they've been there. They've been on that bridge, and then they know that that bridge holds fast. And so for us, reading the Psalms is a little bit like that. We watched the hiker go right on by, didn't even balk, trusted that bridge and moved on. What do you know? The bridge saved him, delivered him. So we are encouraged to do the same. And even in our psalm here, that's kind of what we're having uh, happen this morning. And that's what David moves on to in the next couple of verses there when he's basically saying, take my word for it. Like, I've been there, I've done that, and I can tell you what it's like. I can tell you what the Lord is like. He says, sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. The Lord's saints, Christians, ought to be the most joyful, celebrating, rejoicing people on the earth. We ought to be those who, who realize that the, the weeping is temporary. It's real and it's painful, but it's temporary. The morning is coming and joy comes with the morning. We read in the Bible, First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18, uh, ought to be a verse that everyone has memorized, right? Give thanks in all circumstances. 
For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Always give thanks. Always give thanks. Well, Paul, who wrote that in 1 Thessalonians, had been through some things too. And if you've read through the book of Acts, or if you've read through Paul's epistles, you know he had faced hardship in in ways that I've never faced. Shipwreck, imprisonment, beatings, whippings. He had faced that, and, and that one who had gone through those sorts of things, had faced that kind of opposition, had dealt with those circumstances, he says, give thanks always, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. David is similar. David had been through his hardships, his difficult times, and he could say the same thing. Folks, how can that be? How could they do that? And, you know, maybe they've got some internal well of of gratitude, and, and so they are able to be thankful, but they have the guts to say, and you too should be thankful in every situation. That takes guts on their part, to to command that to us. I mean, yeah, they found it within themselves to be grateful in hardship. But they had the the guts to say that to us, that you also should be thankful. How can that be? How can that be? Well, I think the answer that we find consistently in Scripture is that God, who is our God, who is our Savior, there are two, two key things that work together to make us grateful. One is that He is sovereign over all things. He's in control of the circumstances that came to us. And the second one is that He's good. He's good. And so we can trust the things that come from His hand. That though they may be hard, though there may be weeping for a moment, though there may be difficulty now, yet it came to us from His good hand. And so we can trust it. We can trust Him behind that circumstance, even when the circumstance is difficult. That's the, that's the truth about God. That's the theology behind the commands that the authors of Scripture have the guts to tell us. You too should be thankful, because God is sovereign, and He is good, and thus what you receive from Him is from a good God. And so you can be grateful even in that circumstance. David himself knew the truth of this, that his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime, that weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. I think it may be appropriate for us to take a moment and think about what might be the circumstance behind it. And this is just a might be. We can't say. It doesn't, it doesn't tell us. Uh, this, this psalm was to be used at the dedication of the temple, but we know the temple was not built in David's lifetime, and he worked towards it, and he hoped to see it, and those sorts of things, but he wasn't there for it. But maybe this psalm uh, was written for the purpose of being sung in, in that environment, but what was the backstory? Well, we'll uh, keep an open hand with that, but I think what was going on in the background is that uh, this, is, this is from, you remember Second Samuel chapter 24 when David numbered the people. When he decided to uh, take a census to count everybody, and whether that was you know a conscription kind of idea, like we want to number our army and make sure we've you know we're going to uh, bring people in by the draft and stuff like that, or whether it was just to say you know here let's look at how powerful our army is and boast in it or whatever. Regardless, the fact that he was doing that itself was problematic. It was a sin, and remember what happened as as a result of that. 
judgment came. Do you remember how many people died as a result of the judgment? 70,000. Because of David's decision. Can you imagine the weight? You made a decision. You act, acted in pride. And 70,000 people died because of what you did. That's on David. And so in that situation, he, I think this psalm fits very well. He cries to the Lord. And, and if you remember, the, there, was, there was judgment happening on the land. The pestilence was killing people right and left. And it got to Jerusalem and was just about to wipe things out. And, and the Lord stopped. The Lord had mercy. He had compassion. And he decided not to carry through with, uh, with what David feared, with what the people expected. God relented. David had sinned. The penalty was great, but God relented in that moment. And so David is rejoicing. David is giving great thanks that this could have been much, much worse. And so I think he's reflecting back on that time, and he's reflecting on a time when he knew the Lord's anger, but it was for a moment. He, he, he wept, but it was just for the night. The Lord brought deliverance. We should note here, as we're working through this, we, we, we must pay attention to the difference between the wrath of God that is for sin and poured out upon sinners versus the chastisement of God that is for His children. Okay? So the wrath of God, if we read in Romans chapter 5 and verse 9, making this distinction, Paul says, Since therefore... We have now been justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. The Christian is saved from the wrath of God. That is not uh, coming upon Him. That's not what He takes. He doesn't have that expectation. He has been saved from the wrath of God. Paul says also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and verse 10, Jesus delivers believers from the wrath to come. So, so that's not our future. That's not for us. But remember, in John chapter 3 and verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That wrath of God for sin, as a punishment for sin, remains on the unbeliever for them to bear themselves. Whereas the Christian is spared from the wrath of God. How can that be? Well, we know that's because of what Christ himself did. That Jesus coming into this world, being born one of us, and yet without sin, always obeying his Father, and, and uh, um, fulfilling all righteousness, yet he goes to the cross to bear the penalty for sin. That's the term we use a lot. That was the wrath of God poured out. The wrath of God that I deserve poured out upon Him so that that wrath is fully expended. That wrath for me, that wrath for every Christian, is fully expended in Jesus. So He takes that penalty, and thus, there is no wrath left for the Christian. It has been placed upon Christ. He Himself has borne uh, our sins in His body on the tree. He has borne that, and yet, those who are not in Him, those who are apart from Christ, that same wrath is due them, the same wrath that you deserve, the wrath that I deserve for our sin, 
That same wrath is due them. The one who dies in his unbelief will bear that wrath of God himself. And that's a tough, tough reality. That is a, a painful and difficult thing. And so my, my encouragement this morning is, is for everyone here. You, you don't want to be left at that moment bearing the wrath of God yourself. It's infinite and it's eternal. And there is no escape. The escape that there is, is offered to you right now in Christ. But if you will put your faith in Him, if you will trust in Him as the one who bore the wrath of God in your place, if you will trust in Him, in Him alone, you will find that you are no longer expecting wrath, that that is no longer your plight, that is no longer the penalty that will be paid to you, though you still deserve it. That penalty has been paid by Christ. And you'll have life. So don't, don't leave here this morning without trusting Christ. You need to trust in Him today. Otherwise, that, that wrath of God is, is for you. And none of us wants that. So when he talks about the anger of the Lord here, we need to make a distinction between that anger, the, the wrath of God that is poured on the unbeliever for his sin, versus the chastisement of the Lord where he disciplines his own children. Because Christians still face discipline. We have a father who is righteous and good, and he knows what is good for us. He knows what is best for us. And sometimes he disciplines us. Paul goes on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9. He says, Christians are those whom God has not destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are not destined for wrath, but for salvation. But we are told in Scripture, the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastises every son whom He receives. So it's, it's not a sign of being on the outside that you're, that you're experiencing discipline. I discipline my children. I don't discipline other people's children. You'll all be happy to know. <laughs> Everyone who's had their kids to my house, I don't discipline other people's children. Right? That's a sign of a distinction between my family and those who are not. And it's the same with the family of God. He disciplines those whom He loves. He disciplines those who are His. He chastises every son whom He receives. Well, so that rat raises... Uh, some questions for us. Christian, do you, do you feel like God is mad at you? Now, that's not a throwaway question. I think people walk through life wondering, is God mad at me? In my own uh, history, I, I, I was once um, tricked into playing this game with my sister-in-law. And uh, it was, uh, I, don't even, I don't remember the game at all. And at the start of the game, the contestant, I was the only contestant in this game, I was not told the rules. I wasn't told the goal of the game. And what's worse, okay, I wasn't told the rules, and I wasn't told the goal of the game, what was I trying to accomplish, and there were penalties. And I wasn't told what the penalties were, or, or what would incur the penalties, okay? 
So you imagine the, the problem that that causes, right? And uh, the, um, through some trickery, I probably, I ended up winning the game. I still don't know what, what the rules were or whatever, but I, I did all the stuff right. But I think a lot of people feel that way. They think that way about God. They think, it seems like God's mad at me, but I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why God would be mad at me. God's chastising me for something, but, but in their mind, it's a little bit like that game. I must have done something wrong. I don't know what. But it seems like God is chastising me, right? They think that God is getting them back for some unknown and unknowable infraction. I stepped wrong some way, obviously, because God is mad at me, right? Well, God does chastise, but he does not chastise unfairly. Like that game that I was forced to play, that was very unfair, and that was a, an exercise in, in frustration. Some people's Christian life is like that. But like a good parent, God gives us the boundaries... He gives us the instructions. He gives us the rules for the game, and He does so in Scripture. He gives us, in His Word, what the commands, uh, what His commands are, what His instruction is to us. He does so in His Word. He does so clearly. It's communicated to us. And so, if His children continue in disobedience to what He has commanded, then He will chastise them. And that's one of the things that He uses in bringing us to repentance from our sin. But it's very important that we keep in mind the distinction that God is not like that unfair game that I played where I didn't know the rules and I was punished for breaking the rules. Right? I just did and said stuff and I would get penalized or I'd get rewarded and I'd be like, I don't have any idea. Some people live their Christian life that way. They think, well, you know, I, uh, I'm experiencing hardship. I must have done something wrong. Maybe... Maybe I took the wrong job. Maybe I moved to the wrong town. Maybe maybe I did something else wrong. I don't know what it, I don't know what it was, but God wanted me to do this and I did this and so that must be why I'm experiencing difficulty. So how do we think about that? Well, I've got a few points of application for us to work through and processing through that because my guess is and I've not talked to a lot of you about this. My guess is some of you Look at your life and you think, God's obviously mad at me. I don't know why, but he's mad at me. Let's talk about that. If you are genuinely under the disciplining hand of God for some sinful pattern in your life, then you need to repent of those sins. That's what you need to do today. You just need to repent of that. You need to turn away from that. You need to, you need to look to Christ because he really did bear the wrath of God for that sin also. For the Christian. That's the, the wrath of God is not upon you. There is forgiveness in Christ. But you need to turn away from that. You need to confess that as sin to God. You need to repent of that. And God will forgive you. And by the way, Christian, you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you who empowers you to obey God in the future. Who gives you a desire from the heart to want to and the ability to be able to do so. Maybe you feel like you're being chastised, but you can't identify some sinful pattern in your life that you need to repent of. You, you can't really identify what it is, uh, or, or even if there is something, but you've, you think, well, God must be mad at me. Well, we've got a couple of options ahead of us. One, 
you may actually be in sin against God's word and not know it. You may actually be in sin against God's revealed will and not know it. Why could that be? Well, because maybe you don't know what his revealed will is. Maybe you don't know what God expects of you. Maybe maybe just you're a, you're a new Christian and you're kind of figuring this thing out. Or, or maybe there's uh, something that you've uh, been mistaught on in the past or that you, you've never learned. Well, the way we find those things is to go to God's Word and find out from His Word revealed to us what He wants us to do. God only disciplines His children based upon the revealed will of God. I know not everyone believes that, but I think that's the teaching of Scripture. So, you may feel like you're being chastised, uh, but you, you haven't identified the sin. Well, you, you may need to examine Scripture and see what actually God requires of you. It's possible that you have some misconception of what God requires of you. And when that is identified to you, when you see that, you need to agree with God that that is sin. Confess it. Forsake it. In the exact same process. And praise God that He has used His Word to reveal to you what is sin, what is right, what is wrong. So if you feel like you're being chastised, but you don't know of any sin, and you go to God's Word, and, you're, and you see that, well, I mean, of course we all have sins, but not like some overarching sinful pattern that drives my life. I don't have some major thing or, or, or something like that to, to repent of. I, I, I try to repent of my sin as I, as I become aware of it. I try to turn from it. But I still feel like God's mad at me. I still feel like there's some sort of chastisement going on. Well, that brings us to our second option. You may just be dealing with the very normal struggles of being a fallen human living in a fallen world. People around you sin against you. Our world is a sinful place. There's illness. There are other things that, uh, where injustices go on and stuff like that. It may be just that God has you in a place in your life where you're just feeling those effects. It's not some discipline. It's not that God is mad at you. It's not that God is trying to bring you to repentance for some particular sin. Think about what Paul suffered. Think about what Jesus suffered. So, you may feel like God is mad at you, and, and maybe you need to rethink the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, and how that relates to your life. That we as Christians will suffer. We will suffer. We will face hardship. We will face persecution. All people face difficulty by virtue of living in a fallen world. And so we need to examine those things and, and rejoice in the fact that there is forgiveness in God. If I feel like God is mad at me, I have a place to go. Repent of my sin. Maybe, maybe God's dis disciplining me for something in my life, some pattern of sin that I just hold on to and won't let go of. Maybe God's disciplining me to try and teach me, hey, that thing that you do that no one's ever told you is sin or you've never connected in your mind that that's sin, it really is sin. And you need to repent of it. And you'll find forgiveness for that as well. Or maybe you just expect more out of life. I like comfort. 
and probably you like comfort. And maybe when we experience discomfort, we are looking for the way to get rid of that discomfort as fast as we can because I want to get back to the comfort. And clearly God's mad at me or I wouldn't be experiencing discomfort. That's not the pattern of Scripture. God has his children walk through difficult things, even while smiling at them and not chastising them. Well, so that is his summing up of his lessons learned. That's what he's been talking about. But let's, let's look a little bit and, and quickly at his story here, the, 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 the history, his own personal history, uh, his personal testimony that he shares about the circumstances that he went through. And this is a familiar pattern. If you've read the book of Judges, you will see this pattern. If you remember Uzziah that we talked about a couple weeks ago, you will see the pattern again. First, there's this false sense of security. Verse 6, as for me... I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Right? How often are we tempted to do that? Now, would it be wrong for us to say, if we were to rewrite this or in our own journal or something, we were to say, I said in my prosperity, thank God for my prosperity. That's the way to go. We should praise God. We should thank God for the blessings and the benefits. That's why we have this time of year is to do so. But that's not what David did. He looked at his prosperity, and he said, I shall never be moved. <laughs> I am set for life. Right? Well, the, the gifts that God has given us, the blessings that we have, are they guaranteed for tomorrow? Apart from Christ? Apart from Him and life with Him and knowing Him and peace with God? We're not guaranteed that we'll have a job tomorrow. We're not guaranteed that we'll be alive tomorrow. David says, I shall never be moved. Can't beat me. Can't, can't beat me. Can't, can't touch the, the authority, the power, the position, the success that I've got. So we have this false sense of security. And of course, we know from Proverbs 16, 18, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And we see that played out again and again in Scripture. We think of Uzziah, who was this great king. We read about him in in, uh, 2 Chronicles 26. He was this great king, and he had all this military might, and his fame spread far, and he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he grew strong, he grew proud to his destruction. This is, a, this is a repeat pattern, and I don't even have to look into Scripture to see this pattern. I can just you know, look in the mirror, and I can see this pattern, this false sense of security, and that's, that's where David was. And so that, that kind of sets the, 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 the back, backdrop. That, that's what's going on here. There's, he was doing so well in life, and he didn't just say, praise God that I'm doing well in life. That's a wonderful thing. Instead, he said, and I will continue to do wonderfully because I'm unbeatable. I shall not be moved. And so he moves on to this, this aspect of blessing being withheld. He says, by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face and I was dismayed. So he's looking at his mountain standing strong, which, uh, you know, mountains don't move. I mean, they might a little bit, but not really, you know, tried moving one. Right. And he seems to be saying his position, his, his life was as, as stable, as steady as that mountain. And maybe since this is David talking, maybe he's referring to Mount Zion 
the city of David, Jerusalem, that his political might, that it had all been established, that, that it wasn't going to go anywhere. Maybe he's referring to that. But, but the point is, the favor of God had, had established his mountain. It was unmovable. Why was it immovable? Not because David, because God. Because the favor of God was upon him. He says, it was by, by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong, and then you hid your face. And I was dismayed. That's a figure of speech, by the way. That is some serious understatement. I was dismayed. When, when God hid his favor, he wasn't dismayed. That's, that's, a, that's a terrifying and a terrible situation for him to be in. You hid your face. I was dismayed. And I think if we, if we think back on the situation where uh, David had, you know, in his old age and, and decided he was going to just, you know, count all of his wealth, count all of the wealth of his nation and, and number the people and just see how great I am, right? Kind of like Nebuchadnezzar uh, did, you know, did a similar kind of thing. And he just wanted to see just how wonderful he was as a leader, what I've put together. And that was a terrible sin. That was a terrible sin. And when, when he discovered it was sin, and when he discovered his people dying, when God withheld his blessing, when God turned his face from him, he was dismayed. I think that's a figure of speech indicating I was terribly distraught. It didn't just ruin my afternoon. This derailed my life. And so he goes to fervent prayer. He says, to you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. And then down in 10, hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. He knows where to go to solve this problem. He knows where to go to escape this difficulty. He runs to the Lord. He goes to the Lord in prayer, fervent prayer to the Lord. I need you to deliver me. I need you to be my helper. Please be merciful to me. Because God is sovereign. And God is good. And so he's crying out to that good and sovereign God. And it's interesting what he does in verse 9. He pleads his case. He doesn't just say please and then leave it at that. Instead, he says, what profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? He's, he's making his case uh, before God. He's, he's laying out an argument, kind of like when Abraham was laying out an argument for why God should stay his hand from judging Sodom and Gomorrah. But there are righteous people there. Lord, surely you won't, you'll, you'll spare the city for this number of righteous people. And there's a discussion that goes on. Abraham is making his argument, is making his case, and David here is making his case as well. But notice he's not just saying, uh, I really would like to keep my life so all things being equal, I would just rather come out on top, please. I, I would rather, you know, be spared from hardship. In the psalmist's mind, and this is not disingenuous, in the psalmist's mind, his continuing existence, his continuing life is opportunity to praise God, to glorify God. And how can I do that if I'm dead? How can I tell others about the glory of God, about how wonderful He is if I'm dead. 
And so even in his mind, his argument is not primarily based upon, you know, I would just rather live, I'd rather be spared hardship, uh, I'd rather um, be victorious in this situation. In his mind, it was for the purpose of praising God, of having more opportunity even to praise God. This is what he says, same psalmist in Psalm 51, verse 13. After confessing his sin, laying it out there, repenting, calling upon God, laying his heart bare, after all of that, he's saying, Lord, deliver me. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. I long to be your mouthpiece. I want to proclaim to other people the deliverance of God. I want to share the gospel with other people. I want to tell others about Jesus. I want to tell others about what it means to have peace with God. And if I die, if this ends me, I won't get to do that verbally anymore. Yeah, I'll have heaven and I'll get to testify in that way and, and my life will testify, etc. But I want to stand in front of the congregation and tell people about Christ. I want to stand in front of people and point them to the goodness of God. The salvation that there is to be found in Him. This is, this is Holy Scripture. This is the, ins, the inspired uh, Word of God right here. He's not, he's not just uh, you know, arguing His case and, oh yeah, wink, wink, it'll have a benefit for you too, God. No, he's saying, my life is about praising God. Let me have more life, please, so that I can continue praising God in front of people. Do we think of our lives that way? Do we think of our lives as opportunities to direct other people to God? To point them to Christ? Because i got to be honest, if I were writing this psalm... You know, I'd be willing to make a, a plea before God. I'd be willing to argue my case also. And I'm pretty sure I would be the primary beneficiary. I don't want it to be that way. I want my life to be about Him, directing other people towards Him. In my speech, in my conduct, my family, my life, in my work, in my suffering, in my successes, in my joy and in my sorrow. I want, I want my life to direct other people towards Him. And that's what the psalmist says. And that's what we need to have, is that kind of, that kind of a drive, a desire. That's one point of application there. Just ask yourself that question. By the way, that's the work of God in you to give you that desire. So pray with me, for me, and for you that God would grow that desire within us to honor Him with our whole lives and keep calling upon the Lord for deliverance. Don't give up. Keep praying. I don't know what your circumstance is. I don't know the hard thing you're facing. I don't know uh, where in your life you think God is mad at you or any of those things. Keep going to God with that. Don't give up. Don't give up. So he went to God in fervent prayer, even arguing his case. And then we have, in verse 11, the deliverance that happens. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. God delivered him. God delivered him. He turned that mourning into dancing. Now, I'm not 
much of a dancer. I just, you know, true confessions time. And our time in Africa is, uh, Africa is, um, you learn a lot of lessons about yourself, and there are a lot of differences. And one of the differences is the singing and the dancing in church as a part of their worship. And I, I don't know all the, I don't know, I don't understand all of that because I still, I've been to Africa a few times. I still don't dance as part of my worship. I just don't do that, right? But there's something about the dancing. It's an expression of joy, of joy. And they're free with that. They want to express that. They, and the expression of the joy kind of, you know, lights your fire to want to express that joy more. It's like when someone starts giggling. They start laughing, right? They can either shut themselves off right away. You know, I, I laughed that one time. Ha! And then you're done, right? As opposed to the time where you're drawn into that laughter and you can't stop. And it's almost annoying to you and, it, and to the people around you because you can't stop. And so you got to leave the room and, or whatever, right? Because it's kind of contagious. It kind of builds on itself. And that's, that's what this dancing imagery is like. That the mourning was real and it was painful. And it was turned to dancing that is real and it is joyful. And it's exciting. And it's, it's an expression of God's deliverance, like the, like the removal of pain. I understand the uh, smart people say, I, doctors and whatnot, that one of the greatest uh, feelings that you can have is the removal of pain. When there's pain, when something hurts and it's horrible and that pain is taken away. <laughs> it's not just, hey, I'm back to normal. Okay, now I can go about my day. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. This mourning has been turned into dancing. This weeping has been turned into joy. This sackcloth, the, the, the clothing that would be worn to express mourning and, and sorrow and maybe repentance and, and this kind of, you know, it's, it's rough and it's not fun to wear. It's the kind of thing you want to change. But when you're mourning, you can't. You want to take it off, but you can't. And he says, you have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That's what the salvation of God has done for David. That's what the salvation of God does for us. That that that, that sorrow, that, that place of being in suffering and, and, and experiencing all of that, God brings deliverance. Maybe not quickly. Maybe even not physically. You might still continue in it because we are fallen people living in a fallen world experiencing the, the results of our fallenness. But we who are in Christ know that the greatest threat, the greatest danger, the greatest thing uh, to, to fear, the wrath of God, we don't have to fear. Christ has taken that upon himself. And so whatever I face, I can do so with joy knowing that my relationship with God is secure, knowing that I have peace with him in Christ. And so he, he rejoices. He doesn't describe what the deliverance was like. Uh, he, he talked about healing earlier and things like that, but he's, his, his point is you turned my mourning into dancing. 
you delivered miraculously. You delivered wonderfully in a way that causes me to praise, in a way that causes me to tell others about what God has done, about his deliverance, about, about what it means to have peace with God in Christ. So I'll close with just a couple of points of application here. Give thanks to the Lord for that deliverance. Give thanks to the Lord for that deliverance. If you, if you haven't received that deliverance yet, there's, there's a struggle in your life, there's, there's pain, there's hardship, there's something that you just you, you can't uh, get over. It, it, it's it's, a, it's a, a trial on you. If you have not received the deliverance from that, give God thanks for what He will do. And even if that circumstance doesn't change, give God thanks for your salvation in Christ. Because that's real and that's eternal. Despite the suffering that we might have temporally, eternally, we will have joy and have dancing. If you have been recently rescued, give God thanks. He did that. You have turned my mourning into dancing, David says. He didn't say, I figured it out and went to the psychologist enough so that I turned my mourning into dancing. I did a mind trick, and now I feel like dancing instead of mourning. He says, Lord, you have turned it. So give him thanks. Give him praise when he does so. And look around yourself at what you have to be thankful for. What do you have that you did not receive? God has blessed us enormously. And let's not be like David who, who said to himself in his prosperity, I shall never be moved. The, the, the warning is, we should say to ourselves in our prosperity, praise God for my pros, uh, prosperity. I want to serve him. I want to honor him with it. I want to make his name known because of my prosperity, because of my ease, because of my comfort, because I have been delivered, because I've not faced this difficulty, because of the, God, the blessings that God has given me. I want to praise God for them and direct other people towards God because of them. And so here we are in this Thanksgiving season. And what do we have to be thankful for? Everything. Everything. And especially Jesus. Because if it weren't for Christ, and if it weren't for him, we might have prosperity, and it would do us no good. We might have perfect health until we died and face judgment. We might have the best relationships, the greatest life. We might, we might have every blessing that, that we can imagine in a, in a physical sense, in a psychological sense, in a relational sense. And it'll come to an end because this body will die. And then comes the opportunity for us to stand before God. And I don't want to bear in my body the wrath for my sin. What Christ has done is taken that upon himself. That wrath for every Christian. Born fully, it's done away with, it's, it's gone. And the one who is not a Christian will stand there and bear his own. And, and so my, my encouragement, my, my plea this morning is that if you don't know him, if, if you are still apart from him, if you, if you are not a Christian, you need to trust in Christ. Come to Him. And you will find peace with God rather than wrath of God directed towards you. Rather than enmity with Him, 
You'll now be brought into his family, adopted as his very own. And for that, you can be supremely thankful. And you will be for literally all of eternity. So my, my plea is that you would trust in Christ. And my plea for you, for you who trust in Christ is that you would give him thanks for the ways that he has blessed you that are, that are numerous, too numerous to count, and they start with Jesus himself. And so this Thanksgiving season, let's, uh, let's join together tonight, 6 o'clock, come on back to church. We'll meet over in the Fellowship Hall, and we will do this together. And in, in that uh, context, maybe, maybe some of you have not been to uh, one of those uh, Thanksgiving prayer, praise, and pie social uh, events. We don't just um, pray together. We don't just eat pie. We praise God, and we share with one another why we should praise God, because God did this this year, and I thank Him for that. And someone else will say, God did this this year, and I thank Him for that. And there won't be any dancing. I'm sorry. Not by me, anyway, and not as a part of what we're doing, but it will cause us to have that kind of response. Well, yeah, you praised God, and I want to also because God did this, and and you thanked God because of that uh, deliverance, and I thank God because of this deliverance, and it builds on itself, and we give God glory, and we join together in being those who, who give Him praise, in voicing that to one another, directing one another to give God glory. So that's... Uh, I'd love to see you here tonight. I'd love to uh, have problems because there's not enough seating in the fellowship hall. Let's praise God together. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are grateful for this passage in Psalm 30 that directs us to give you thanks. As we think about David's situation, the context he found himself in, the, the circumstances, and, and some of us face tough circumstances, things that maybe we're just dissatisfied with, or maybe horrific suffering, and all things in between. I pray that you would help us to look to you, to cry out to you, I pray that you would make clear to us, even from this morning, even from your word, that you are reliable. You are our Savior. That you, the sovereign God, are also good. And the things that you do in our lives are for our good. And so we can trust them and we can trust you. Father, I thank you for the mercies that you have had uh, towards me, that you have shown yourself strong on my behalf. And I pray that, that each of us would even take this week and think about those things and reflect on you, that, that we would see our lives like David saw his life as an opportunity to proclaim the goodness of God to everyone who listened, to glorify you in our conversation in our relationships with other people, to direct others to Christ. I pray that that would be us this Thanksgiving. I pray that, that uh, sinners would hear of the salvation that there is in Christ, that they also would put their faith in Him and, and enter into your family, having peace with you. Father, we're grateful for the deliverances past. We pray that you would 
deliver again. And that as we face circumstances, that our eyes would be fixed on you. We thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that you are good. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. God bless you all. I hope to see you tonight, and you are dismissed.